Well, good evening. <laughs> I think we'll try that one again. Good evening. That's more like it. Uh, when we realize what we're actually a part of. Uh, I'm afraid, uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I have seen uh, many sermons whereby uh, the, the, the gentleman at the front doesn't seem too enthused. Uh, but if that's what you're expecting tonight, then I'm afraid you don't know me because I am going to be telling you about God. <laughs> and there's no way that we can do that in a rather restrained and nondescript fashion. So when I say it is a good evening, what an evening it is indeed, because we're going to be turning to the book of Titus. Our reading is going to be in the first chapter of this book. So I'll give you a moment, go in the back as well. And this is what it says in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. Well, tonight we embark uh, on, a, on a brief series uh, in the book of Titus. Uh, we turn to this epistle with a theme of leadership in mind, uh, a theme that seems fair given uh, much of the material in the book. Uh, indeed, as we saw in our letter here, Paul has left Titus uh, in Crete uh, with the task of setting the church in order. And with this difficult assignment, this older uh, apostle uh, instructs this young pastor to appoint good leaders. Uh, Leaders with a track record of godliness, uh, with a proven character in the home and in the community. Uh, 
leaders who would mould the church the way it should be moulded, so that the power of the word of God would be evident in the life of that church. Uh, This is why uh, the letter develops uh, these themes in chapters 2 and 3. But you see, it's not just a letter for leaders. Uh, Although it asks that the leaders uh, spiritually excel, every man, every woman, whether young or old, is vital to the health of the church. All are called to excel. Uh, Which means that the book of Titus uh, is for each and every one of us here tonight. Uh, There is a call on our lives to be living examples of the God we profess to serve. So as such, although this uh, mini-series is entitled Learning to Lead, it's not really a case of, well, me preaching to myself. (laughs) Uh, Possibly with all of you sitting there with some sort of checklist thinking, well, yes, he's got that one at least, yes. (laughs) That's not what this is about tonight. Rather, as we all look at this short book, we see that there's a challenge that lies before all of us. There's a task set before all of us. Individually, collectively, we have this challenge to have God change us so we become the evidence of the life-changing power of the gospel. There's a challenge to grow, not just in numbers, not in geographical spread or reputation, but to grow daily more and more into his image and into his likeness. So as such, while we're going to be coming to this text, asking what it says about leaders, bear in mind that whatever lesson is brought out, whatever lesson we have here applied to a leader, actually applies to each and every one of us. With that in mind, uh, what does Titus 1 say about leaders? Well, actually, if you were listening carefully, you'll notice that uh, quite a lot would be the answer. It has quite a lot to say uh, about uh, leaders, particularly, I suppose, verses 5 to 9. And we could have uh, spent our evening uh, looking at these verses, examining each uh, sentence, each line, and create a list of character traits that we could use. Um, as a checklist for good church leadership. Uh, We see here there's an abundance of material to do such a thing, to provide good foundations for what a leader is supposed to be. The problem with that is that very often misses the point. (laughs) Uh, All of the behaviors, all of the things that a leader does should actually flow from who that leader is. Uh, who they are intrinsically on, on the inside. That, that is where all of these things come. All of those measurable elements actually come from somewhere a little bit more important. There is a, um, an, an, an identity that it really matters. And that identity is actually summed up in the opening three words of this letter. Paul, a servant. It's incredibly important that leaders recognize that they are servants. For all of their uh, abilities, for all of their strengths, uh, possibly for all of their charisma or knowledge, a leader is nothing without an appreciation of who they're really supposed to be. 
it is vital for any leader uh, to ensure that there is no room for them to be puffed up, to be arrogant, to have uh, delusions of grandeur, as it were. It's really important that any leader does not think of himself as a giant amongst men, <laughs> filled with that importance and authority in their own right. To be a leader is to be, as Paul clearly says, a servant. Um, quite often, uh, you'll hear the, the phrase to describe um, a, a church leader as an under-shepherd. Uh, it's not a term I particularly like, I'll be honest. Uh, and quite often the Bible describes uh, leaders as, as shepherds, and, 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 and that's great. But there's this phrase, the under-shepherd. And the idea is, of course, that we have this one great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And then... Rather worryingly, it's almost like some sort of church hierarchy, just a little bit lower than that. <laughs> you have your, your under-shepherd. And it, it can be a problem if a leader imagines himself to be that little bit less than Christ, imagining he has a prominent place in the church hierarchy, uh, we know where he can look down on everybody else. This leader, this type of leader, he strides out at the front, and he claims all this power, all this authority that belongs to Christ, but he claims it for himself. It's almost as if he claims that he is the shepherd in Christ's absence. I'm afraid that's disastrous. Uh, first of all, because Christ is not absent. <laughs> Christ is alive and well and active in this room right now. There is no vacuum, there is no need for a pale imitation shepherd to step up. Uh, Jesus doesn't need human beings to fill his role. Which then gives rise to the question, so what is the under-shepherd? <laughs> what is it supposed to be? What does it mean to watch and guard over the flock? Well, an under-shepherd in the Bible is probably better understood as a sheepdog, rather than a shepherd. Now, don't get me wrong, a sheepdog has a really important role. You know, it's there at the back, it's keeping the flock together, it's trying to make sure that the flock follow the shepherd. The sheepdog should spot the dangers, should throw themselves, as it were, put themselves on the line for the flock. It is a really important job. But the job is to make sure that the sheep stay with the shepherd, that the sheep are focused on him rather than looking to the dog. I'll tell you what, if the dog got up on its hind legs and pretended to be a shepherd, you're in trouble. <laughs> Whenever you know, a man pretends to try and take the role that belongs to God himself, we are in trouble. If a man seeks to lead you in his own right, in his own authority, you can only ever go astray. So believe me, it is vital that a leader understands that he is a servant. He's at the back. He has a very important job, but his job is not for you to be looking at him, but to be looking at the shepherd. Who he serves. Now, uh, when I say that the leader is a servant, it's important that you grasp what I mean by this. You see, it's not just a role that he plays. It's not just a job that he has. It's not just how he acts when he comes into work. When Paul describes himself as a servant here, uh, something he does at the beginning or middle of almost every book he writes, 
he's not just describing a role, he's trying to describe his very identity. It's not his rank, it's not his job. It's a description, not of what he is, but, but fundamentally who he is. Uh, now, as I said, uh, at the outset, uh, this book is not just for leaders, and some of you should already be slightly ahead of me in thinking, uh, actually, whilst you're talking about being servants, uh, I can actually see how that applies to each and every one of us. Each of us needs to see that we are servants. Again, not like a, it's not a role. It, it, it's not like a jacket that you put on when you come to church and you can just get rid of it as soon as you leave. When you describe a servant, it's a description of who you are. This is important because what we do is supposed to be an expression of who we are. What we are on the inside when you act as a servant in this place, it's not because you're conforming to a church culture. It's because God has been doing something inside of you. Actually, that's quite a distinction. Two radically different approaches which make two radically different kinds of church. The point is that one is genuine. One is the outflowing of the Spirit of God within us. The bedrock of a really healthy church. You see people intent on caring and loving one another. The other is a form of empty play-acting, where you seek approval by, by jumping through different church hoops. When Paul describes himself as a servant, it, it's not just a role. It is about what he is as a human being. It is his identity. And yes, it applies to leaders who are perhaps prone to forgetting, uh, prone to lording it over people. But it applies to all of us. And it should change the way that we look at each other. But that's not all that Paul says. Having recognized that being a servant is the foundation for what follows, it's important that we notice it's not quite finished there uh, because Paul goes a little bit further in that same verse because he actually says... Paul, a servant of God. Which is a relief. <laughs> when you think of yourself as a servant to everybody, there's a sort of tyranny to that. <laughs> when, you're, when you're running around trying to serve everybody all of the time, it's difficult. But instead it says here, he is a servant of God. It's normal. It is, it is, it is incredibly common for people to imagine that the, the servant up at the front is my servant. In most churches, there is something of an unwritten contract, uh, an undisclosed job description, which occurs in the mind of every single person in the church. <laughs> Uh, so when, when I take on this job, uh, which I'm delighted to take on, by the way, uh, when I take on this job, uh, <laughs> thank you, uh, eh, there is in your heads, in every single individual here, there is a sort of a, a, a list of things I'm supposed to be. Uh, each and every one of you, although it's unspoken, are prone and are, are ready for disappointment, possibly even some sort of disapproval uh, heading my way. Because there is no possible way that anyone 
could match what is inside the minds of every single person here. And that unwritten contract, you are supposed to be this. It's impossible. When I was uh, training lots of of young uh, ministers and pastors, you know, I always used to tell them to to enjoy that first fortnight, as it were, uh, because, you know, you haven't decided anything, you haven't done anything, you haven't upset anyone. And if you're going really well, it might last a fortnight. Well, I must actually say that, although each of you will have a bespoke version of what I'm supposed to be, I'm a servant of God. And I have witnessed many, many uh, young leaders crumble under the weight of expectation. But Paul is not just a servant. He is a servant of God. And when I apply that to myself, I recognize I give glory to God when I look after you. I I give glory to God when I instruct you, when I point you to Jesus Christ. But I serve God. Him. He is the shepherd. He calls the shots. That means that when God tells me to do something, I have to do it. Uh, this morning I was at uh, Gilgamesden Church. Uh, we were just, just left, um, as it were. It was a, a farewell uh, morning, as it were. People were, were saying goodbye to me and my family. And uh, I think as I was saying to a couple of you earlier, it's one of those really weird situations where you're actually quite pleased that people are upset. You know, when there's tears and things, you're like, yes, yes, <laughs> they really will miss me. Although, you know, on the, on the surface, you're more. Like, <laughs> and when many of them turned to me and said, why are you leaving? I mean, I could have answered uh, 101 different ways. But the truth of it was, God told me. God made it clear that I am supposed to be a few hundred yards down the road. And when God tells you to do something, you do it. Now, uh, you don't have to be a specialist in the Old Testament to have read the book of Jonah. (laughs) I've read the book of Jonah. I've read it quite often. And when God tells me to do something, I think to myself, I should probably just do it. (laughs) Because I'm a servant. He's not my servant. I don't go in demanding what I'm going to do. I don't tell God what tasks I will do. Because I am his servant. And on occasion, that means that I have to deliver messages of repentance. Messages of warning. And I can't refuse. I can't curry favor by softening or avoiding that kind of message. The master appoints, the servant does. Uh, In the past... It has meant on occasion that I have had to deliver harsh messages. Though on a human level I would have wanted to avoid the conflict, to preach a message of peace, even though there was no peace, it would have been pointless. And uh, to some extent that's what verses 9 to 16 is, is, is largely about in our chapter. To be honest with you, there have been times in my life where I have almost said to God, please send someone else. Please let somebody else deliver that message. To copy Jonah and try and run away rather than deliver the message I was given. And I say almost because I am a servant of God. So 
Again, please bear with me, because although that applies to the leader, I'm sure all of us can appreciate the fact that this applies to every single one of us tonight. When we forget that we are the servants of God, when we imagine ourselves to be the servants of men, then we can be easily swayed. You know, that sneering disapproval of man or the accolades of good report suddenly make you want to soften what God would say. But as servants of God, we do not live to please men. We do not live to serve ourselves. We live so we can hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. So as servants of God, each and every one of us goes where he sends us. We speak as he instructs us. And we find ourselves deployed rather than demanding. (laughs) Now, having grasped that, We have to say that being a servant of God is not a demeaning thing. It is to be greatly elevated in status. And when I say that we're not supposed to be puffed up and counting ourselves as better than our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is vitally important. Because we are servants. We can't allow ourselves to, to walk around and pretend that everyone else here is actually quite lucky that we're here. We can't pretend that that God is actually quite lucky to have us. We serve God. But once we grasp that, we understand what a tremendous sense of worth we get by being a servant of God. We get to wear that badge with pride. I am a servant of the Most High. When you are the servant of God, when you serve one who is incomparably wondrous, who is gloriously exalted, he is the Lord of hosts, he is the commander of all things, he is the one who is full of grace and mercy, the one who defines love, the one who provided the good news of the gospel. We are the servants of God and it is a wondrous thing. It means that if, by some accident, we were to be crowned as monarch of these islands, in comparison, it is a terrible demotion from being the servant of the king of kings. And so we should stand tall and we say, I serve at the pleasure of the Most High. And there's a wonderful freedom in that. When you realize that you're not there to please men. Uh, That you're not there in some sort of endless pursuit to find fulfillment for your life out with God. It's a wonderful freedom to it, to know we serve Him. (laughs) Where I go, what I do, that's not my department. That's up to Him to decide. I just go and do it. And of course, even then, Paul's not quite finished. (laughs) I feel appreciate Um, it should be noticed that as servants of God, we have a mission that we've been given. Uh, It's a mission that is articulated in the rest of that sentence, which uh, takes up the whole of verses 1 to 3. Let me read them out again, uh, this, this long sentence. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. (laughs) Paul is a servant with a purpose. His actions here are for the sake of the faith. 
He is to see people built up in knowledge and godliness. That is the purpose of his service. And he does it with a powerful tool in his hand, the preaching of the word of God. Uh, Now, the the knowledge spoken of here um, literally means uh, the recognition of the truth, uh, which leads to godliness. Um, it's, it's not sort of an, an accumulation of information. It's not biblical facts or spiritual statistics that we're talking about uh, in this kind of knowledge. Uh, it's it better understood as, as that moment when you see the truth and are forever changed. To see God is to be changed by God. And so, through the preaching of the word, we are to see God and we are to be changed by God. Uh, That means that the preaching should make a difference. (laughs) It also means that just as with everything else tonight, it's not just about a leader or a preacher when I say that. You see, the word of God is to be read. It is to be consumed. It's to be grappled with. And those bits you don't quite get, fine. Wrestle with them. (laughs) Come and talk to me about them. (laughs) You know, really get into the word of God. And that also means that when the sermon is happening, what a wonderful opportunity we have. Because you don't sit there passively. You don't sit there as the words echo around the room. There's something you're supposed to do. As an aside, the very heart of the Old Testament, what Jesus describes as the most important bit of the Old Testament, so I've got to kind of agree with him, to be fair, that the beating heart of the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's known as the Shema. Brilliant. It's called that because that's how it starts. It says, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. You know, Shema means to hear, to listen. And what follows after that about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might, passing on to every generation, having the word of God at the front of your mind every moment of the day when you go out and when you come back, when you get up, when you go to bed, all of that that follows is the very heart of the whole of the Old Testament. And it comes down to that word, Shema. Now, the the reason I'm I'm saying that is I believe that this word, the simple Hebrew word, Shema, neatly describes what I'm trying to say uh, about the role of preaching, about the role of the Word of God when it comes to meeting God and being changed by God. You see, like most Hebrew words, uh, it's actually quite difficult to translate because most Hebrew words require like a whole sentence in English to, to really encapsulate To shema means to listen, but it means to to really, really listen. It means to really, really listen because you value the one who is speaking. And so you take the words that are being said and you put them deep down inside of yourself. You allow those words of God to go right into the very core of your being. And once they are there, they're supposed to change you. Those words are not just supposed to be in one ear and out the other. They're supposed to go into the very depths of your being. And so you change from the inside out so that everything that you do is completely different. I feel sorry for our translators to look at each other and say, well, we just put down, you know, listen. (laughs) 
what a powerful word that is, to shema. And it kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to say. When the Israelites were told, hear, O Israel, shema Yishvayel, they weren't told, oh, you know, you just sit back while somebody talks. They were told to intentionally allow the voice of God to touch the innermost part. To have what he says to change you, because it's so deep down there. And to change you utterly. Christianity has never really been about following a list of rules or trying really hard in the hope that you please God. Christianity is about a person, Jesus Christ. As a Christian, the purpose of my life is not to meet some church etiquettes or to externally observe the things that might be considered good. I'm on this planet not to do lots of good things or be nice to lots of people because that's not enough. I'm not supposed to stand before God quite proud of all the things that I've managed to accomplish. (laughs) I'm not even called upon to even just put in enough effort into my life to be better and meet God's approval. I've said that before, but it's a very dangerous and foolish notion. The idea that we're supposed to help ourselves towards godliness. I know what we're like. But it's a foolish notion. You know, we might uh, be encouraged enough to, to, to improve our behavior for a day or a week. Or for really into it, maybe a month. But we're doomed to failure because we're expecting something which is inherently sinful. Something which by nature would be dead. To imitate life. To imitate God. And I can only last so long. The truth is that we are called upon to be changed by God. To be brought to life by the power of God. Raised up not in our own strength. Not by our own great efforts. We are to be changed by God. And from there as his servant. We don't make do with a list of good deeds. Every breath of that now living man is for his glory. Every thought should be about ensuring that I am more and more like him every day. You know the the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What a list. These things are not achieved by human effort. They're not called the fruit of if you try hard enough. (laughs) They're the fruit of the Spirit. They're the evidence of lives that have been changed because God got deep down inside. Lives molded because we would shama the Word of God. We would have the words of God entering into our lives And making a difference. And again, there's a wonderful sense of freedom when you realize it's not about simply trying harder. I mean, trying harder at (laughs) self-control. No. Instead, what we are to do is to pursue God. Have him changes so that our desires our self-destructive tendencies diminish and we find that self-control emerges because we're becoming more like him when we shema 
we find that our hopes and our dreams begin to match what he would want. Our attitude towards each other becomes reflective of Christ. So that what we do flows out of who we are. Our identity as servants of God, reflecting God, seeing the truth of what he says and being moved towards godliness. We are supposed to be shaped by God rather than attempt to please others or try and earn his approval. And so this means that we have to ask some uncomfortable questions. Has the preaching been leading us to godliness? And if not, we need to ask, why not? Have we ceased to listen? Have we ceased to really take these words deep down inside into our being? It's not enough for you just to turn up, to to clock up some extra points, as it were. The, The preaching is not incidental. And so you see, it's not just about the leader or the preacher. Each of us needs to ask, is the preaching of the word of God leading to godliness? Can I see the evidence? Can I see that transformation? Even if it's a slow change. (laughs) Even if it's a change beset with missteps all along the way. Do we see the evidence of the power of God helping us grow in our love of God and our brothers and sisters in this place? Now hopefully, if you're looking at yourself You can say, well, there is some evidence, but I really wish there was more. Not to beat yourself up, because that is such a healthy place to be. See, yes, God is doing a thing in my life, but oh, I am ready for him to do more. (laughs) No, I'm not going to be under condemnation because I'm not the finished article. I'm going to be inspired to be more like him. I am going to want To have the word of God working in me. If you even want to have God changing you, God is doing something in you. So when you sit there and you think, actually I'm quite happy where I am. Actually I'm pretty good. Uh, Maybe then we've got more of a problem. When you think, well, God's been working in my life for decades. What more could he be doing? (laughs) We're thinking too small. We've got the whole of eternity to become more and more like him. Well, it's, uh, it's time for me to conclude. Time for me to remind each and every one of us that we are servants. That we are to be servants, not just by what we do, but by who we are. So that destructive pride and self-satisfa- self-satisfaction is replaced by love and a concern for each other. We are called to be servants, and we're also, remember, called to be the servants of God. We do not serve ourselves, we serve at his pleasure, we do what he tells us. And yet for all of that, it is vital that we understand that we serve with a purpose. Each of us is to take the word of God deep down inside. Each of us is to be open to God changing us, molding us into his image, so that we do reflect godliness. We are to be the evidence that the gospel works. Not because we try really hard, but because he changes us. Because every breath we have belongs to him already. And so we should use it to give him glory.
Let that be true of us as we leave this place excited rather than condemned. Excited about what God might actually do in us and amongst us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we serve you. We thank you that there is no one else that we serve but you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be good servants. I pray, Lord, that we would reflect you in who we are. But we thank you, Lord, for the freedom that comes when we know it's not the approval of men, it's not a a list of rights and wrongs, but a person in you that we serve. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are all uh, under construction. We thank you, Lord, that you're not finished with any of us. And instead, we look forward to tomorrow when you may well do a wonderful thing in and amongst us. And so simply, Lord, we say, here we are. Send us. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.